You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. The way I worked, it's pretty difficult to uh, thumbnail sketch this thing, even though uh, to try to summarize what has taken place over there before and when Elvis came in and everything. This was the way I worked with artists, not just with Elvis, but those artists that we've spoken of before, mainly the black artists. Uh, I had the patience to work with them, and uh, patience was my biggest, uh, biggest commodity, unless it was just hard-headedness. Uh, I, I, knew, I knew what I didn't want. I can't say uh, that I always knew what I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want. So... This was a gradual process of coming in, not trying to rush the young man uh, or even Scotty and Bill at that time, because we were searching. We were searching to find a, not a category of music as such, but a feel on whatever type of uh, music it was, whether it was rhythm and blues or whether it was uh, country flavored type of thing. I did not want to go for the Nashville sound because they were doing good country records over there in those days. And I wasn't interested in that. I certainly didn't want to go for the big band sound. So it was a question of me feeling, and that was my job. If I couldn't make that contribution, I had no business being there because they were there in the studio. It was up to me to guide them. And when I felt something, I felt it. And if I didn't feel it, I was honest with them and told them. Sam Phillips talking about Elvis Presley at Sun Records. Hello and welcome to part two of Sundays, a study of the recordings done by Elvis Presley at the now legendary Sun Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. In part one, I covered the recordings he did, along with guitarist Scotty Moore and bassist Bill Black, in the tiny studio at 706 Union Avenue between June 1953 and November 1954. In this second episode, I will throw the spotlight on the tracks he did in his final year at Sun before Sam sold his contract to RCA in November 1955. I'll include samples of each song as we go along. 1955 was to be a busy year for Elvis, Scotty and Bill. Due to the success of the recordings they'd done in 1954, they were now in big demand for personal appearances. New Year's Day found the trio performing in front of a capacity crowd at the Eagles Hall in Houston. A few days later, they were in New Boston, Texas. This was where a certain Colonel Tom Parker crossed paths with Elvis for the first time. Lots more one-night stands followed in Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri and Louisiana. Sam was keen to get Elvis and the boys back in the studio to follow up on the success of their first three singles. The first opportunity they got was the first week in February. The exact date is unknown, but as they were contracted to appear on the Louisiana Hayride on Saturday the 5th, it's likely they all assembled at 706 Union Avenue sometime between Monday, January the 31st and Friday, February 4th. Three songs were recorded, I Got a Woman, Trying to Get to You and Baby Let's Play House. RCA received and then lost the tape from this session. More about that later. The tape included two takes of I Got a Woman, one of Trying to Get to You and two of Baby Let's Play House. The only song from this session that survived is Baby Let's Play House. It had been written and recorded by Arthur Gunter the previous year on the Excello Records label. You may go to college, may go to school, you may 
get religion, baby, don't you be nobody's fool now, baby, come, baby, come, come back, baby, come, come back, baby, I want to play house with you. Well, there's a man to tell you, baby, what I'm talking about, come on back to me, little girl, so we can play some house and house, baby, come back, baby, come. Come back, baby, come. Come back, baby, Elvis's version differs greatly from the original. He started the song with the chorus, where Gunter began with the first verse, and replaced Gunter's line, You may get religion, with the words, You may have a pink Cadillac. The boys left the studio with the possibility that they had the A side for a new single but the other two songs done that day almost certainly couldn't be used as a B-side. They had begun to include I Got a Woman in their live shows. However, Sam would have wanted something a little less well-known for the single, as the writer Ray Charles had taken it to the top of the charts only a few months previously. Eleven months later, it would be the very first song Elvis recorded at his inaugural RCA session in Nashville on January 10th, 1956. That session also produced the now-legendary recording Heartbreak Hotel. Trying to Get to You was shelved and was re-recorded at a session held in the summer. Sam was eager to try and get the second side of Elvis's fourth single cut and he managed to get the band back in the studio Saturday, March 5th. They warmed up with the song You're a Heartbreaker. They had recorded the previous November and was the B-side of his latest single. It was having moderate success in the charts. They used this run-through so Sam could get a balance on the instruments and Elvis's vocal on the mixing console. It wasn't an attempt to re-record it, and no tape was running. Sam had asked a young drummer by the name of Jimmy Lott to come in on the session. He felt he needed to fill the sound out because he didn't want this single to sound too much like the first three. He wanted some progression in the sound. Casting around for an appropriate song, Sam asked the boys to try You're Right, I'm Left, She's Gone. It was written by Bill Taylor and Stan Kessler, who were part of a group called the Snearly Ranch Boys, who also recorded for Sun. We're right, I'm left, she's gone. We're right, and I'm left all alone. Well, you tried to tell me so, but how was I to know that she he was not the one for me? You told After six takes, Sam asked them to slow it down to give him another option to choose from for release. This slow version is also known by the title My Baby's Gone. It features a guitar lick based on the Delmore Brothers' Blues Stay Away From Me.
garbage gone Will you ride And I'll lay All alone All alone Will you try To take me so But honey I was I They then briefly tried the Wayne Walker, Webb Pierce song, How Do You Think I Feel? Just before they started the tryout, Scotty Moore can be heard playing the Blue Stay Away From Me riff, confirming that this is from the same session as You're Right, I'm Left, She's Gone. Unfortunately, Elvis is singing way off mic and can barely be heard, but for historical reasons I've included it here. Listen carefully for his vocal. Drummer Jimmy Lott seems to be throwing the rest of the band off with the rumba-like beat and they quickly abandoned it. It was probably for the best as the song was Hank Snow and son Jimmy Rogers' new single and they must have thought there was no point in trying to compete with their version. Elvis resurrected the song during his first recording session at Radio Recorders in Hollywood on September 1st, 1956 and RCA included it on the album released in October of that year. Sam had the next single, so he was happy enough to let the boys go. Baby Let's Play House, backed with I'm Left, You're Right, She's Gone, was released as a single on April 25th, 1955. It became the first recording by Elvis to appear on a national chart when it made number five on the Billboard Country Singles chart in July of that year. There was some confusion over the date of the next recording session, 
RCA have it listed in the booklet that accompanies the CD Elvis at Sun as taking place on Monday, July 11th. However, an official union contract dates the session as being held on Thursday, July the 21st. Whatever the date, the purpose of the session was clear. They were there to record their fifth, and as it ultimately turned out, final single for Sun. For material, they went back to Stan Kessler, who with Sun artist Charlie Feathers came up with a second country melody with a similar play on words title. At first, Elvis expressed doubts about I Forgot to Remember to Forget, but at Sam's urging, and with new drummer Johnny Bernero playing around with the tempo, slowing it down as Sam directed him, he slowly warmed up to the song. I forgot to remember to forget her I can't seem to get her off my mind I thought I'd never miss her But I found out somehow I think about her almost all the time The day she went away I made myself a promise that I'd soon forget where men. But something sure is wrong, cause I'm so blue and lonely I forgot to remember to forget. And then one of the most interesting records I've ever heard, not because I produced it, was Mystery Train, which was a record that Elvis fell in love with by little Junior Parker when I recorded him on, on Sun. And as a matter of fact, that was uh, his first release. Train I ride, 16 coaches long. Train I ride. Well, that long black train got my baby and gone. Train, train, coming round, round the bend. Train, train, coming round the bend. Well, it took my baby, but it never will again, no, not again. Train, train, coming down, down the line. Train, train, coming down the line. Well, it's bringing my baby, cause she's my oh, oh, my, she's my oh, oh, my. At the end, Elvis broke into delighted laughter, unaware that his chuckle would go down as one of rock and roll's most memorable moments. Happy that they'd got both A and B sides for a new single, Elvis revisited Trying to Get to You. 
This time they tried it with drums, and this time they got it. In Sam's mind, it was another definite contender for future single release. I've been traveling over miles Even through the valleys too I've been traveling in day I've been running all the way Baby, trying to get to you Ever since I read your letter Where he said you loved me been traveling night and day I've been running all the way Baby, trying to get to you Elvis's acoustic guitar drops out of the mix, supporting the suggestion that the piano part, barely audible in the track, may be his own. This was to be Elvis's final commercial recording session for Sam Phillips. When my way was dark at night He would shine as bright as light When I was trying to get to you Sometime during the first week of November 1955, Elvis, Scotty, Bill and drummer Johnny Bernero assembled at Sun one last time. Sam and Elvis agreed that all they really needed was a B-side for trying to get to you. Sam thought they should try Sun artist Billy the Kid Emerson's When It Rains It Really Pours. Troubles, 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 troubles. When it rains it really pours. Shouldn't have took away my loving You know you thrilled me from head to toes I got a feeling for you, baby You're the only one who knows About my troubles, troubles, troubles Elvis and the band started work on the song. Try one more time now. Scotty, don't don't, don't make it too damn complicated in the middle there. Try try to hold a a pretty good steady uh, tempo. You know that we have to start out. All right, I'll try to give it all you got. Maybe we'll get something. You're just going to get too close on that mic if you do. That's the only thing I can do. I don't know what we're gonna do with Carl Perkins. <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna do with Perkins over there. <laughs> hey, you know when you first hit it? You just hold that and you get and you change. Can you pull your volume down just a hair? You know what it takes, you got it, baby. Are the only one I've chose, 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 chose. Well, what happened? 
You know what it takes, you got it, baby. You are the only one I've chose. I don't leave me here with all these heartaches. Only you in heaven know about my troubles, troubles, troubles. When it rains, it really pours. You shouldn't have took away my loving You know you thrill me from head to toe I got a feeling for you, baby And you're the only one who knows About my troubles, troubles, troubles When it rains, it really pours By now, there were rumblings on the grapevine that the big record companies were getting interested in the young singer from Memphis. Johnny Bernero remembers Sam calling Elvis into the control room in the middle of the session, with Elvis emerging to announce his contract had been sold to RCA and the session was over. Here's Sam telling what happened. Well, Parker uh, and I... um we had known each other from the days of his managing Eddie Arnold, back in the early days of Eddie Arnold. And then, of course, he came along to manage uh, Hank Snow for a short period of time. And uh, so the colonel and I had known each other for a long time. Bob Neal, who was then managing Elvis, I had turned uh, Bob over because I never tried to personally manage because I had my hands full with a one-man operation, so to speak in the record business, but uh, he had heard Elvis. Uh, he was uh, booking at that time uh, Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters. So they had crossed paths and uh, a few shows uh, happened to appear uh, at the same time uh, on the same stage. And, and of course, uh, Tom Parker uh, was nobody's fool. And you could you could feel the undergirding of this young man building uh, everywhere you went, uh, and you have to keep in mind that this was before television and all of that with him. So it was one of those things that uh, Parker had his ear to the ground, and uh, naturally, being the businessman that he is. Uh, uh, I got the word that uh, it was going out to my distributors that possibly Elvis Presley's contract was for sale. Well, now that disturbed me no end. So I called uh, <clears throat> Bob Neal and said, Bob, do you know what you're doing to me? And I turned Elvis over to you uh, to manage him. And uh, you can ruin me with my distributors. They'll think I am not leveling with them. And these people have been a, as much a part of helping us to make Elvis what he is today as any of us have been, because they have trusted me, trusted my word, and they have worked for him. 
And he said, well, it's not me. It's not me. I, well, it's, uh, the report is getting back to me from too many distributors. That, uh, there's some rumblings, and I want to get at the bottom of it. Well, I later found out via uh, the grapevine, I won't mention the name, but I found out who it was. It was Tom Parker spreading the news that possibly Elvis Presley was going to be leaving some records. So I um, talked to uh, Bob Neal and found out uh, that uh, Parker was in New York. I called him up and told him uh, uh, what was happening. And I said, now, I've got too much time, and uh, God knows a lot of miles behind me in this man. And he uh, said, well, he was interested in the boy, but that now he had not spread the news that he was going to Columbia or he was going to Capitol or he was going to RCA. I said, well, now, Tom, you got to level with me. I said, if you want to do some talking about the possibilities, uh, that's fine. You can come on down here and we'll talk about it. But I said, uh, it's not going to be cheap. And I said, I am not necessarily at all interested in it. Well, he had asked me, he said, would you sell Elvis's contract? I said, man, don't talk to me. I might even sell my mother, you know. But uh, anyway, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, he said, well, I'll get on down there tomorrow or the next day, and I will call you and, and, and let you know and set up uh, an appointment with you. And so we did. I was building my first radio station here in Memphis at the time, and sure enough, he came in town the next day. We sat down and talked at the Holiday Inn. I had studios for the first radio station I built here in 55, uh, uh, right there in the Holiday Inn, too, which was the incidentally the second Holiday Inn that was ever built in the world. But anyway, we sat down and uh, went over this thing, and uh, I made him an offer. I said, well, Tom, look. I do need the money. Uh, I have got some other people that I am working with that I have an awful lot of confidence in, but there's certainly no demand uh, in this respect for them. So he asked me what I would take, and uh, after quite a perusal on it, uh, I gave him a figure. He said, will you give me two weeks to see if I can raise the money? So that's how it happened, and he called me. The option money that they put up, which was $5,000, they had two weeks to round up the money. He called me about uh, 5 o'clock the afternoon before the uh, option contract would be up uh, at midnight that night and said, well, look, I have just finally gotten the money together, and I do not want to lose the option, and I will wire the money over to you subject to... Uh, uh, all of us getting together tomorrow and uh, getting the uh, formal contract uh, drawn. I said, well, Tom, there's no use in wiring the money if you tell me you're going to do that. I said, uh, that'll be fine. Come on over. And so that's really how it happened. Uh, so he had the lawyers and everything in here from RCA and uh, some people from Hill and Rain Songs. And uh, so that's how it happened. We sold Elvis for thirty-five plus $5,000 we owed him in royalty. The contract was signed on Monday, November the 21st, at the studio. Publicity photos would be taken at RCA's New York studios on December the 1st, showing Elvis holding his acoustic guitar in front of an RCA Victor studio mic on an overhead boom. The photos were strictly for promotional purposes. No recordings were done by Elvis for RCA until January the 10th, 1956, in Nashville. As for the abandoned session... 
When It Rains, It Really Pours went unreleased for 28 years. It was finally released on the 1983 LP Elvis, A Legendary Performer, Volume 4. Elvis re-recorded it in 1957, but again it wasn't immediately released and was held in the vault until 1965 when it was included on the album Elvis for Everyone. Fifteen tapes of Sun recordings were handed over to RCA in November 1955. Producer Steve Scholes made some handwritten notes on them in January 1956. Eight tapes were shipped from New York to the vault in Indianapolis in 1957. Most of the 15 original tapes are lost today, some destroyed, others may have been stolen. The Harbour Lights tape I featured in Part 1 was found in Steve Scholl's desk after his death in 1968. The tape containing When It Rains It Really Pours was lost for years until it was found inside another box in 1982. Elvis did record one more time in Sun Studio, however it wasn't an official session. Sometime in the early afternoon of Tuesday, December 4th, 1956, Elvis arrived to pay a casual visit, accompanied by girlfriend Marilyn Evans. They found Carl Perkins in the middle of a session. Also playing keyboards for Carl was a young up-and-coming singer by the name of Jerry Lee Lewis. An impromptu jam began. Jack Clement was engineering that day and remembers saying to himself, I think it would be remiss of me not to record this, and so he did. Well, uh, he Jack said, "Same song, Bill Monroe." Oh, uh, Bill Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight I'm alone without you, my dear. It seems there's a longing for you still, but I'll just keep it there so I won't be alone in our little cabin home on the hill. Well, someone has taken you from me. And left me here all alone To listen to the rain We don't have no pain In our little cabin home on the hill Yeah This is all right, it's pretty Rover Boys trio sing Father Along Will this Rover Boys Give us a deep chord here We have a little chord here Brother, live in the 
you sign up. Oh, man. <laughs> bad. Let me see. Uh, you just a second, Charlie. They were soon joined by another young Sun artist, Johnny Cash. During the jam, Sam called a local newspaper, the Memphis Press Scimitar. Bob Johnson, the newspaper entertainment editor, came over to the studio with photographer George Pierce. Johnson wrote an article about the session, which appeared the following day in the Press Scimitar, under the headline Million Dollar Quartet. The article contained the now-famous photograph of Elvis, seated at the piano, surrounded by Lewis, Perkins and Cash. The uncropped version of the photo also includes Marilyn Evans, shown seated atop the piano. The tape remained on the shelf until 1981, when it was released as an LP, the Million Dollar Quartet, containing 17 tracks, focusing on the gospel spiritual music from the session. Several years later, additional material was discovered. This resulted in the release of the 1987 2LP set, the Complete Million Dollar Quartet Sessions, According to Erst Jorgensen, who consults for RCA, the published material contains about 95% of the master recordings. We found three reels, he said. You could always argue that there were more, but in the first you can hear Elvis arriving, and in the last you can hear him leaving. I doubt that there were any more. The recordings done by Elvis, Scotty and Bill in the small studio located at 706 Union Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, between July 1954 and November 1955, are arguably the most important in the history of recorded music. I'll leave the final words to Sam Phillips. When I heard of Elvis's death, um, I can say, as uh, I think everyone, uh, needless to say, really, that uh, we were uh, shocked to disbelief. But uh, I had worked uh, at a funeral home uh, for a number of years when I was in high school trying to make a living and uh, go to school too. And I had been subjected to people uh, and, uh, and, and time, at times like this. Uh, so I, I felt like I could deal with it except that, I mean, I stopped, stood in my conscience and said, can this really be true? And I hope that uh, the people will understand here the reason that I think that no one in the world could have felt closer to Elvis and could have been in any way more affected than the way I was affected, no matter how much they love him. And I know there are jillions that do. The evidence has been there for so many years. But this was, without a doubt, the blackest day of my life. But... Let me tell you this, knowing that Elvis Presley had meant so much to so many people, knowing the things that we had overcome together, knowing the things that he overcome, overcame uh, uh, years later, knowing the highs and lows in his life, and knowing also that his fans stayed with him like they did, I think there was some real strength and a bond there that made us all say to ourselves, this guy is not God, but he is a good friend. First of all, secondly, he is a good man. Thirdly, he is a person that has contributed an awful, awful lot to not only just the music world, but in my opinion, 
to the common language, which is music all over the world. And for that, I think we all had to find solace in the fact that Elvis might be dead physically, but Elvis lives on now, and I think forevermore. It's an odd thing about Elvis Presley, and here again, I want to, uh, I don't want to be too redundant about this, but Elvis, believe it or not, did not want to be. Sure, he loved the accolades, as we all do, and anybody says they don't, I'm just scared maybe that uh, they're trying to hibernate and don't know it. But I think that uh, uh, the misconceptions that the people had grew very few, few and far between uh, later on, because as Elvis used his influence, and as uh, hopefully you'll believe this, Sun Records also, that we crossed a lot of barriers in music. We amalgamated music. Uh, we, we just didn't want the segregation in music, because to me, music is music is music if it says something. And I think that... Uh, the misconceptions that might still be out there with the general public. Now, I'm not talking about artists or even his contemporaries or anything, which uh, I honestly, truly believe he was as well-liked as anybody by his contemporaries and even the artists that have come later. But the, probably the biggest misconception of Elvis is that he was not what he purported to be because all of the bad publicity that came. And I'm talking about this is a very minute bunch of people. And you know, as I know, and the people that are listening know, that a lot of damn trash came out on this man. And a lot of things that came out that were, was true. But you have to look back beyond what was the reason for this. You have to look at this person and realize that he is mortal. And I think in the final analysis, and with all that has been said bad about him, I think that people in the main, young and old, uh, have looked at him because he was so well-liked by the masses of people. And I don't only mean just white people, but I'm talking about blacks and Hispanics. Elvis Presley stood in so many ways because he wasn't afraid to try different things in music. He always looked like, hey, uh, I'm believable. He always had that little sass about him, but he would come around to that dang smile that would break you down. So I think that people saw so much in Elvis Presley that they wanted to really idolize and after it became fashionable, man, to do a little boogie, you know, the older folks and this sort of thing that used to fight him, I think that uh, there just wasn't too many people around, except maybe some of the dyed-in-the-wool uh, people that thought, well, if you're not listening to Shostakovich, you're not listening to music. But I just don't see an awful lot on the surface of the people, and believe me, Elvis has been dead long enough for me to hear as many stories as anybody else, I think that there is probably not too much illusion other than what I have stated that is around about Elvis Presley.
Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you haven't already, please check out my other episodes. They are all available on good podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcast, Podbean, Google Podcast, Stitcher and iHeartRadio to name just a few. You can contact me by email at ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel at gmail.com. You can also contact me on Facebook and Twitter. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel podcast.